Welcome to the Uphill Athlete Podcast, where our mission is to educate and celebrate all mountain athletes. My name is Steve House, and I will be your host today, along with Alisa Clark and Chantelle Robitaille. Today, we will be continuing our series on training for mountaineering. In the last episode, we covered the fundamentals of aerobic base training, and we will now dive into the aerobic threshold test, discuss some of the different methods of testing, talk about how to assess your test results, and cover the how and why of setting zones. Welcome Chantel and Alisa. Chantel, would you like to start us off by talking about what an aerobic threshold test is? Yeah, absolutely. So last in the last episode, we talked a lot about um, how when we are doing longer events, we are really relying on our aerobic metabolic pathways. So the more energy our aerobic metabolism can produce, and the faster that it can do it, the longer we can sustain higher outputs. So that's endurance. And an aerobic threshold test helps us determine our aerobic fitness. And it also helps us determine appropriate training intensities so that we can have the opportunity to improve the health of our aerobic engine. Because if we don't know where we're starting, it's hard for us to know how much we're improving. So we've got to have that that start point to help guide us along the path. That's great. Alisa, do you have any observations to add about that? No, you know, after uh, being a part of the email, I think it's one of the questions that we get the most because it is what we start out with um, for most all of our our training plans and all of our training, we start with the aerobic threshold test. And I know that it can cause quite a bit of confusion of like, how do we run it? What are we aiming for? Why is this important? Because most people get into the anaerobic threshold test or they think that's what they need to do. Um, So I think that this is such a great way to clarify some of the confusion and just really get into the reasonings of why we do this test and its importance in especially the type of training that we have our athletes do, um, why we do it. So with that being said, um, there are a couple of different methods that you can use to conduct an aerobic threshold test, um, like the math method, nose breathing, the heart rate drift test, blood lactate, gas exchange, et cetera. And I'd love to hear if you two, maybe Chantel can take the first three and Steve, you could take the second two um, of kind of the pluses and minuses of each. And we also have a great article on a pill athlete kind of explaining these as well, but would love to hear you two um, talk about this. Sure. All right. I'll start off with the, the math test. And that is a probably a lot of people remember this, maybe from even school days where you would take a formula with 100 minus your age uh, if you're training consistently. And then that would be, you know, your magic um, aerobic heart rate number. Um, So, you know, on the positive side, it's very easy to calculate and it's very easy to understand what it is. Um, But it also, the way that that formula is written, it kind of suggests that as you get older, you get more efficient at fat burning, but they're really isn't any evidence that shows us that a 30-year-old would burn fat at a heart rate of 150 and a 50-year-old would burn fat 
at a heart rate of 130. So there's a lot of variability with this since it's a formula and, you know, we're all complex human systems. So it's, it's a little bit hard to predict. And also if we think about the fact that heart rate is affected by a lot of different factors, right? It's affected, affected by our caffeine consumption, maybe the last meal we ate, how well you slept, the temperature uh, that it, you know, the temperature that's happening when you're out doing your exercise, um, altitude for women, menstrual cycle, lots of things. So having just one number rather than testing in a way where you get a range is a little bit um, maybe oversimplified. Um, and so maybe there are better methods that we could use to be more accurate. If I may interject, uh, we have a great podcast from an earlier episode where Phil Maffetone, who developed the Maffetone aerobic formula, as he called I'm sorry, is Maffetone aerobic function formula, I believe. Um, so Scott Johnson interviewed Phil Maffetone on the podcast, and Scott and Phil actually met in back in the 70s in Boulder, Colorado. So they had some a little bit of history, and Phil has a great podcast and uh, we'll link to that in the show notes because I think it'll be really interesting for those of you that are interested to know more about it. There's also some modifiers that we suggest. Those are just on the webpage, but uh, about aerobic uh, threshold self-assessment. We won't go into those, but there are some possible modifiers if you've been sick or, you know, if you've been already training for a long time, those kinds of things that Phil recommends. So just wanted to highlight that. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's always great to understand where these, how these formulas are derived and the, and the, the science behind them, the ideas behind them and how they can be used. But it's, you know, nice, easy, quick calculation, you know, and um, with some modifiers can be helpful for people to use that. Um, the next one on your list, Alyssa, was nose breathing. And this is nice and simple. And, you know, the concept of this is if you're, if you're out if you're out running or doing your activity and you can breathe through only your nose, there's a strong chance that you're in an aerobic state. Um, but there are some caveats to this, of course. Um, what if you have asthma? What if you're recovering from a flu or a cold or things like that? That might, you know, that might not really work for you. What if it's really cold or hot outside? Um, and also, I don't know if you have, any of you have seen those uh, videos of some collegiate athletes that were training like this, and you see these athletes speeding around on a collegiate track with tape over their mouths. They are definitely not going, <laughs> um, they are definitely not running within their aerobic zones. So um, it's not, I don't think, a good test, but I do think it is a useful check-in for yourself. If you are out on um, a run and you're supposed to be within your aerobic range, uh, training zone, you are running around, you can test yourself to see if you're just breathing through your nose. And so that's a nice, easy kind of check-in, but I wouldn't say that it would be an accurate method to determine your, um, necessarily your aerobic training bandwidth. Yeah, I would add on to that. That's one of the cues I often use, especially with people who are starting to learn what that means. Um, is that I say like, okay, <laughs> can you have a full conversation? Is it starting to get harder to talk? Um, can you breathe out of your nose? And so I think it's a great way because I think especially for newer athletes and, and myself included in that, it can get 
um, tiring and sometimes sad to just constantly be looking at your watch being like, oh my gosh, am I still in my zones? And it is important to check, but I do think that that's a great way to just kind of recenter yourself. Like, okay, am I breathing way too hard? Can I hold on to a conversation? And so that's one of the ones I really like. It kind of goes into perceived effort as well. Um, but I, I like to use that one as a cue. Those of you that have been following up athlete for a long time will recall that when we published the training for the new albinism book, we relied almost exclusively on this test. And the reason we actually kind of started to move away from it is when we found with athletes that were really new to training and didn't have much fitness coming in, that it wasn't reflective um, because there almost couldn't be in any intensity zone and still be in conversational pace. And it wasn't that they were doing anything wrong. It's just that this, at lower levels of fitness, this test seems to not be as good as for people who have a more developed fitness base. Definitely. And I think that um, Zoe Nance, one of our coaches, is working really hard on a, a great um, rate of perceived effort uh, kind of chart that I think will be really useful for people to see and take um, as well, kind of going along with this concept that Steve is mentioning. I think that'll be really useful for our athletes because it's important to not only know the goal of your workout, what zone you're supposed to be in and, you know, knowing what those are and being able to trust that information for yourself, but also to be able to check in with yourself when you're out doing your activities and making sure that you're able, that you are um, in the correct zone. As Alyssa said, it's, it can be kind of tiresome sometimes to continually look down at your watch. So being able to make kind of a mind body connection with, how you're breathing and how you're feeling is, is really good. And I think it, it helps build our confidence too, right? When we're out there feeling good about uh, the fact that we're doing the right things for our training. Definitely. Yeah. I feel like it, it's always, I, I like to think of it as an honesty check. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So the next one I have is um, heart rate drift test. Chantel, if you want to take that one on and then, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the heart rate drift test is a really nice, um, simple and reliable test. It's a great way to uh, determine your aerobic threshold, but it's also, again, another great tool that you can use as an inactivity um, check-in. And due to the fact that it is a simple and reliable test, um, that has kind of become the go-to at Uphill Athlete for uh, determining the workout zones. And so there are definitely on the website, a lot of great articles you can read with some really good instructions on how to do this. But this basic, uh, basically this simple test uses the idea that when you're able to hold your aerobic pace, your heart rate will remain fairly constant for as long as an hour. And maybe for some, you know, really experienced athletes longer than that. If your heart rate rises more than 5% at that steady pace, then it's more likely that your starting heart rate was higher than your aerobic threshold. And if your heart rate drift is less, then maybe your starting heart rate was a little bit too low. So it's really easy for you to um, administer this test to get started. And also with um, if you're looking at your data and training peaks after the fact, there's even a heart rate, a uh, pace to heart rate ratio where you can look that up to see that you're 
in the right zone. And it's basically seeing, you know, how is your heart rate responding according to the pace that you're moving at? Um, and it should be able to stay pretty stable for an hour. After that point, when you're starting to get tired, that's where we get the, the cardiac drift where you, your um, effort level might, or even your pace might even be decreasing a little bit, but your heart rate is drifting upwards. Um, and so that is a really useful test. So Steve, the next one we have is blood lactate. Um, if you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, the blood lactate concentration test relies on a little device, a little monitor that, and it works by after doing a warm up, you do exercise at an aerobic pace. And as you progress, you gradually increase your pace usually in three minute increments and every three minutes you actually take a little blood sample and you use us there's these little test strips that go with this little monitoring device and it gives you a measure of the actual lactate concentration in your blood and i have one of these at home i've used it quite a bit it is accurate it does help set this this boundary of where your aerobic threshold is, which is also sometimes known as the maximum lactate steady state of 2.0 millimoles of lactate. And that does work, but the whole piece around having to prick your finger or prick an earlobe, get a drop of blood, the other problem is that sweat can contaminate the sample and then you don't get a good reading. It can be actually quite finicky to do and it takes a team of people. You have the person doing the test and then you need a coach or somebody else actually taking the readings. It's easiest to do it on a treadmill, but people often don't like to do things on a you know treadmill, so that makes that hard. There's, there's a lot of downsides and while it is accurate, it is uh, techy and finicky and really a very specific type of test that honestly we don't use very much anymore. Yeah, kind of a personal anecdote. I went to a ski academy in high school and we used to do a blood lactate testing for all of us. Um, and I just remember being on a treadmill, putting your hand down, getting pricked. And it did take an entire team. Um, and it was quite a process to get it done. But it's just so funny as a high schooler, you just kind of are like, cool, okay, go for it. Uh, but then now looking at it, it's just, that's such a very specific niche to be at a high school that was doing blood lactate testing um, at the age of like 14 years old. But uh, it's just so funny to return to this and, and be seeing this test coming up. It's very accurate, but um, it is finicky. And a lot of people don't really like getting their finger poked while they're running on a treadmill. <laughs> yeah, that was also my first exposure was as a junior Nordic ski racer at a summer training camp. And like, I don't know, it's a long time ago. And we also ran some training seminars in various locations as a pill athlete and we used to do this as part of the seminar and it would take all day to get everybody in the seminar through blood lactate testing just like there's just no fast way easy way to do it so a lot lots of downsides but let's move on let's move on to some of the other things we can do yeah so the last one 
which I actually see people do more often as an alternative, uh, is gas exchange. So if we can go through just the pluses and minuses of that, and then we'll move on to what we recommend as a athlete. Yeah, I can talk about that. The gas exchange test is done in a laboratory. You do use a treadmill. Typically, well, not typically, always you want to use the modality that you're most accustomed to. So if you're a cyclist, you would do it on a bike. If you're a runner, you do it on a, on a treadmill. They also make, you know, big, um, treadmills I've seen for testing ski mountaineering athletes and for Nordic ski athletes and all these kinds of different things. I've seen big, um, equine treadmills. Is that how you say that for horses? Those are wild. Those Those are wild to see horses getting VO2 max tests. Right. I've never actually seen one in person. I've only seen the the equipment like there, but I've never actually seen it done. For the listeners, for the listeners, you have to Google a horse VO2 max test because it's unbelievable to watch. I can't imagine (laughs) what the VO2 max of a horse must be. It must be like 200 or something. Like it must be just incredible. They're so strong. So yeah, lots of different uh, ways to to do that. Um, We do want to caution people that you do need to really prep the lab as to what you're looking for and that you're not looking for a max VO2 test per se, although that can be part of the result you get. And we do have information on the website about it, including a PDF that you can download and share with the lab that basically lays out what you want them to do. The biggest mistake that we see people running into is the lab increases the intensity too quickly without enough to the, the, the steps between intense, from one intensity to the next as they ramp up the speed of the treadmill are too short in duration and they miss the actual aerobic uh, threshold um, boundary and go right into anaerobic because a lot of them are used to sort of people coming in from a traditional anaerobic threshold first mentality and they're just trying to get an anaerobic threshold number or a VO2 max number. But this is a great test because it's probably the most accurate. You're going to get a a lot of information out of the test besides just your zones. Uh, The downside, the biggest downside is finding the lab and the cost. You know, it's going to run you between probably two and $400. So it, it is a commitment in getting that done. I think it's important to to point out those those caveats um, to the listeners because the you know they may be reading things about people getting VO two max tests or they may be learning about um, someone doing VO two max tests in their area. So it's important to understand how you know how the data is derived, what we're testing, and with the gas exchange where we're looking at as the person is on the treadmill, we're looking at how much oxygen they're using at what rate they're using oxygen at different levels of intensity and also the exchange between the oxygen coming in and carbon dioxide going out. So you definitely can learn a lot of cool things, right? Like you said, Steve, you can learn your lactate threshold. Sometimes they can combine that with this test. You can learn your um, heart rate and pace for different stages of the test. Um, You can learn what your VO2 max is. You can also potentially learn, if you give the right instructions to the tester, you can potentially learn what your um, aerobic threshold is, uh, what your ventilatory thresholds are, you know, ventilatory threshold one and two, 
which can help uh, give you some guidance and information for your both your um, aerobic threshold and your anaerobic threshold or lactate threshold. So that can be kind of useful. Um, but again, it's really important to understand how the how the lab is doing the test, what type of protocol they're doing, and for you as an athlete, what you're hoping to gain from the test to be able to share that um, in a way so that the tester can give you the information that you feel you need to carry forward, however you're planning to use that data. Just as a funny anecdote, I'm friends with uh, Reinhold Mesner and Peter Hobbler, and one time I heard them talking, telling me about the what happened before and after they climbed Everest without supplemental oxygen for the first time. It was, I, I believe, somebody's going to get mad at me, but I think it was 1978 or 79. But they did these max VO2 tests on them before they left, at a, I think in Zurich. And then immediately afterwards, they flew them back. And, you know, the surprising thing is, the unsurprising thing is that their VO2 max went up because they lost so much weight on the expedition. The, the surprising thing is that they didn't test that high. Like Peter's was pretty decent, but I think Reinhold's was like 42 or something. It wasn't like, you know, they were mm -hmm. expecting these guys to be some sort of mutants and it wasn't like that. So I want to say that because it's important not to get hung up with these numbers and try to connect your value as an athlete to numbers like this that actually don't really mean that much, except whether or not we can move them and whether we can improve them and get better. And a lot of it, and a lot of the results in sport actually have a lot more to do with, you know, other factors like, you know, your mental fortitude and your technique and your efficiency and whether or not you get the good weather window and all these other myriads of things. So just a little fun anecdote. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a really great thing to, to point out, right? Because people might look at someone like Killian Journey, right? He is uh, a, he is a tal very talented athlete in many ways from a physiological perspective, but also from a technical perspective. And he has a very high VO2 max, right? But for a lot of people, they may, a lot of athletes may be really talented athletes and don't have such a high VO2 max. And VO2 max is to some extent, uh, it's genetics, right? It's 80% of VO2 max is determined by genetics. 20% is trainable. So you can have some influence through your training on your VO2 max, but you have a lot more influence on improving your aerobic capacity and also improving your lactate threshold. And those are things that are not determined by our genetics. They are, those are things that we, needles that we can move, right, by our training. And I think that's why it's important to have, if we have, let's say, our aerobic threshold as our benchmark, we can use that to set our training zones. We can make sure that we're training the correct amounts at the correct intensities. And that, that allows us to make up the difference, right? If we are not genetically gifted athletes, we can still be incredible athletes. And we can still make improvements no matter our training histories or even our ages. I love that. I think that's really important information for people because it can, sorry, my cat's trying to get in the podcast. Um, it can, I think, deter people where they just think, oh, I'm not capable of accomplishing this. Um, and you can out train a lot <laughs> or you can train through a lot. And I think um, particularly in endurance events, the mental component comes 
into such a strong play that I think it can overcome a lot of uh, genetics, I guess, is a way of putting it. Uh, Talent. I think talent matters in some cases, but not nearly as much in other cases. Um, So Chantel kind of touched on this already, but what does Uphill Athlete recommend as the method of conducting an aerobic threshold test? And why do we recommend that? Steve, if you want to lead us off on that. Yeah, we mostly rely on the heart rate drift test. And the reason is a lot of the points that Chantel touched on, it's reliable, it's simple, it's not very costly, uh, it's repeatable. Uh, There's a lot of advantages to it. And we like it so much, it's basically become the first workout in the first week of every training plan and every coached athlete that comes in, we they go through some sort of aerobic threshold test and usually it's a heart rate drift test. The only time it's not a heart rate drift test is if they're coming in with actual lab results and those lab results look good, like, you know, hold together. And yeah, it's just, it's just a great way to do it. The only kind of downside is that you do need a tool like training peaks to analyze to quickly and easily measure that that heart rate drift or that you know cardiac drift, as it's sometimes called. And I would say the only other thing they need in addition to that is obviously uh, their smartwatch that's capturing that information and a chest strap heart rate monitor, so that we get the most accurate information compared to you know the the unreliable nature of having the sensor on the wrist, so that we are you know we want to make sure that we're getting good good quality data that we're making those um, training suggestions on. Yeah, that is a great point, Chantel, and something we get pushed back on a lot because people don't like to have another thing. and Everybody thinks they already have a heart rate monitor on their wrist, but you really have to have the chest strap. And even if you don't have a watch, you can buy a chest strap for 50 bucks from Wahoo and link it to the Wahoo app. And you know, you can have a, a, better heart rate monitor than you have ever, ever can have on your wrist. So really recommend people to, to get a chest strap and use that. Definitely. So with the actual test, um, we recommend two different ways of conducting this test. Um, but Chantel, I'd love if you were to be able to explain a little bit of how to do each test. So one, we have on the treadmill and then it's basically like inside and outside. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to inside hear. and outside. Yeah. Yeah. And that's going to, obviously, you know, it's going to depend on, you know, if someone is not used to running on a treadmill, I would say don't even think about doing it on the treadmill because um, it can be stressful for some people to run on a treadmill if they're not used to it. And so that's obviously going to affect your heart rate. Um, and maybe they're not comfortable. I remember, um, in grad school working in a lab where we did a lot of testing on athletes. And so Steve, you were talking about these big treadmills where you could, um, you could actually use, um, inline, we had like inline skaters on that. And we had, uh, schema athletes on that as well. For some runners doing treadmill tests, we actually had to put them on that really big treadmill because trail runners take up space they don't run in a really linear form. Um, and so their, you know, arms are a little wider. And so they were constantly banging the bars on the treadmill. Uh, maybe just a weird little um, anecdote for those easy. particular athletes. 
yeah, it's, it's really hard for them to run on a treadmill. And so they weren't comfortable. And so we weren't really getting, we weren't really getting very good, um, information for them. Um, so just something to note, uh, before we get into the treadmill side of things, but for doing the self-assessment, um, if you're running outside, we recommend that you do this on a flatter service or even just a, a moderately, um, rolling surface, but nothing that is too steep, uh, because that's obviously remember that we're looking for our aerobic threshold and this should feel nice and easy and comfortable. And so for this test, you would start out with a warm-up. Um, you know, as we just mentioned, you will also be wearing your heart rate monitor. Um, you don't have to be wearing it all the time after the fact, but to get, um, you know, to get some good information to set your zones, you'll want to start your test and at least a few of your first workouts wearing the, the heart rate monitor um, to check in with yourself. So you'll do a nice little warm-up for 10 or 15 minutes, and then you will... Um, hit the lap button on your watch, start your test. And so you're going to be running at a low intensity. So you want to have a nice steady heart rate uh, throughout this test. You want to be breathing comfortably. Um, Alyssa talked earlier about some, you know, talk tests you could do to check in with yourself. So how's your breathing? Are you breathing predominantly through your nose? And if you did a talk test, um, how many words could you say? Do you think you could have a full conversation? you know, or an easy conversation if there were someone beside you. And don't feel bad about talking out loud if you're doing this out in the woods. Talk to those trees, talk to those birds, that's totally fine. You want it, the point is to keep the intensity nice and low and comfortable and nice and, and stable. So check in with the heart rate and see what that, what that heart rate looks like and try to maintain that heart rate throughout once you feel you've determined that nice, easy, low pace where you feel that your heart rate would be, you know, pretty stable for an hour. And then at the end of the test, um, you know, hit your stop button, you know, continue on with your cool down if you feel you need one. And then you can review the, the, um, the stats for this on training peak. So you'll see, I think I talked about this before, you'll see the heart to a heart rate to pace ratio, or rather the pace, the heart rate ratio. And you'll want to see that that's within 5%. If it's not, um, if it's, you know, higher than maybe you started a little higher than you should have, and you'll want to redo the test, but no big deal. Um, and if it's lower, you maybe started a little bit too low. Um, but again, it's, it's pretty simple to do. And it's something that you can also sort of retest, um, as you go along. Um, Steve, did you want to talk about, um, any other, uh, suggestions you might have for athletes doing this outside and then maybe the difference for those that are doing it on a treadmill, if that's what they choose. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a few things to, to go through that I think will, I just want to reiterate some of these key points. One is this, the selection of the course you run outside is pretty important so ideally you know we even have people running on a track and it doesn't matter which lane you're in you're not running worrying about time you're worrying about can you maintain a given pace at a given heart rate so that should be your goal run exactly the same pace for an hour while being aerobic the whole time that's your goal so if you 
run a, on a trail or on a hilly course or out and back on a course that's a little bit like along a river if you ran up the river to begin and then down the river on the that's not going to work you you really have to be careful with the the terrain that you select and probably the simplest way for a lot of people to just eliminate that is to do it on a running track then i would also say that you know some of the analysis that that Chantel is talking about, it's a little hard to visualize if you can't see the graphs. And there is a video on the website. If you just search the website for a heart rate drift test or on our YouTube channel and search heart rate drift test, there is a video that shows you how to do this and how to select the data because you actually don't even use all your data. You want to do the warm up first and then you know, select your data starting between 10 and 15 minutes once you're warmed up and you've settled into your pace you've got the aerobics, the aerobic system doesn't come online in, in five seconds, right? Like we don't need to go into all that physiology, but it, it takes a bit for the aerobic system to get going and your body to get warmed up and to be capable of what you're asking it to do. So make sure that when you select the data, you're selecting the right piece of the data and you don't have to select um, all the way to the end either. And you can play with it and look you know, I might just look at the, it's it's super fast and you'll see this in the video to, for example, just select like the first 10 minutes of the video of the, of the test, see what your average heart rate is. Oh, there, my heart average heart rate was 132. Select the last few minutes. Oh, there's my heart rate was, you know, 142. Oh, hmm, that doesn't look so good. Let's look at all of it and see where the trend was, that kind of thing. You can really quickly zero in on this. And we do this test also as part of the training groups. And so sometimes we're having 150 plus people all do this test out in the field within the same week and then walking everybody through this analysis. So uh, on their own data. And so it, it is possible, but you do need these couple of simple tools uh, to, to do it. And, it. and I think if you get those basics right, you'll be able to find that it's a really useful way to kind of basically set your aerobic training up correctly. Awesome. I'm sure that our listeners will uh, find that really helpful uh, to hear, hear you both walk through that. So this is great information for our listeners, and I know it's going to be really helpful. Um, but one of the questions we often get is, how do you then take these this test and assess your results? Um, what do they tell you? So Steve, we'd love to hear that. Yeah, so what we're going to do with this information is use it to set your training zones. And as you've heard, we're mostly interested, especially in the beginning stages of training, in developing your aerobic system. So we want to make sure we know where your aerobic training zone is, where your aerobic capacity building zone is. And this is super important. So what we're trying to define is the upper limit of that, you know, zone two in the uphill athlete nomenclature that we use in the books and on the website. And that is important to know because you want to be training within that or below that uh, threshold, uh, below that heart rate. So once you've done a test and you found a heart rate, which does not drift during the test or drifts less than 5%, that then you have set your top of your zone too. 
it is going to be important to note that it might take you a couple of tries at this test, especially if you go a little too fast and you, it's pretty common for people to start the test and end up, you know, having a bigger heart rate drift because they weren't able to maintain the pace. It's also common for people to do something and to underestimate their aerobic fitness and they maybe start off with a guesstimate of, you know, their heart rate being 125 and they do the test and there's zero drift, or maybe they're even running faster at the end of the hour. That means that you need to go back and do the test again and, and just increase your pace, your exertion level just a tiny bit. So the, these things are all normal parts of this process, but once you've done this once, you'll be much faster at it subsequently. And so we'll get to this number, which is the top of zone two. Excellent. And then just really quickly, how in training peaks do you find that um, number? Like, what's that part look like? Yeah, so what I will do is I will, in the workout, you basically select the period in the middle of the workout, post-warm-up and pre-cool-down, where you think you were in your aerobic training zone, where you didn't have drift of more than 5% between pace and heart rate. And you look at what that average heart rate is. And training peaks will just immediately, instantly calculate that for you. And, you know, you can look at that number. And I want people to keep in mind that we are not robots or something where we're going to always <laughs> perform to plus or minus 0.01 beats per minute. You know, you may look at that number that may be, say, 132 okay, well, I might just make the top of my zone two 130. You know, it's, it's it's close enough. And, you know, it's also going to be affected by things like sleep and recovery and stress and other things as well. So the, the number, the exact, your actual aerobic threshold will probably be a little different every day. So this is what I mean by just keeping this in mind that we are not robots, we're not machines, we're humans and we're physiological creatures and it's, there's a lot of things that affect this number. So if pick and find the average, look at that number and then if you have to round up or down, go a little bit down rather than a little bit up typically and just start there to be on the safe side. Excellent. No, I think that will really help people to um, set those zones. Well, I guess with that being said, how do you then um, take that percentage, take that number, which is the top of your zone two, and determine um, the rest of your zones from that? Uh, Chantel, we'd love for you to lead off on that. So the reason why we want to start with this test is like I said, if we, if we are looking to improve something, we have to have we have to have some measurement tools, right? So if we're if we're setting our um, aerobic threshold as our benchmark, and that's going to determine that the top of zone two, and that zone then zone two is really what we've just determined, right? Our aerobic threshold, and then you know about ten percent below that. So from you know minus ten percent to aerobic threshold, that's our zone two. And then if we look below that for zone one, then we're looking at sort of 20% to 10% below aerobic threshold. That's going to be our zone one, right? So we can see like what's, what's below that. So that's going to be like very easy, easy, easy effort. And then if we want to look above that, 
we're looking at zone three. Zone three is going to be where we have sort of that division between the the um, aerobic threshold and lactate threshold. So that's going to be, you know, pretty hard effort, not, you know, exhaustive effort, but still, you know, medium, moderate um, sort of an effort. And so we're going to want to know what what that is. And we're going to want to stay out of that zone if we are focused on an aerobic workout. And then obviously, if we look at, you know, that uh, uphill athlete, we use four zones. Zone four is really the, the harder work, which is, you know, the, the lactate threshold to our maximum heart rate, which we haven't talked about determining in this test. Um, and we'll, we'll follow up on that in a future episode when we talk about setting the anaerobic threshold and looking at the difference. What results do we get looking at our anaerobic threshold compared to our aerobic threshold? And if that, what happens if that distance is too great? But that's another animal and we'll, we'll cover that in another, in another uh, future episode. For sure. And I can attest to the fact that the anaerobic threshold test is not nearly as much fun as the aerobic threshold test. It's quite painful. <laughs> Depends how you define fun. Yeah, that's true. very, very true. <laughs> Some people love to do those. So true. This is why I run 240 miles and not like a 10K for most of the time. <laughs> exactly. So now that we know how you set up your zones, how you do the test, um, and some more information about the test, the last thing that we'll wrap up with is common mistakes that you see in testing. Um, Chantel unfortunately had to head out, but Steve, can you name some? Because I'm sure you've seen quite a bit of common mistakes that people make while they are doing the aerobic test. Yeah, I think that the most common mistake is just being afraid of the test. You know, don't put too much pressure on yourself. Put the put the chest strap on, put the watch on, consider it a pleasant workout. Go out, give yourself a nice, easy warm-up. Find a, a track, do it at a nice time of day, do it when you're like adequately fueled and rested and all the things and just see if you can just like go for one of those runs where you sort of peg your pace at a really nice, fun, easy pace and just try to keep it there for one hour and, and don't overthink it. That's the biggest mistake. I think that's great. Something I will say, or I guess two parts is, Again, using the wrist-based heart rate. Um, so you really need to do a chest heart rate monitor. It doesn't work with the wrist heart rate. And the other thing um, is that like using the modality of exercise that you're planning to spend the most time in. So if you are a hiker, you should do it at a fast walking pace. Um, if you are a runner, it should be running. So really making sure that you are using the modality that you will um, be training as well, because that's going to give you the most accurate. Like if I went and tried to do it swimming or biking, it would be wildly like I'm just not efficient enough to be able to give an accurate test. Um, so I think that that's a, a key point as well is pick the sport that you're either working in or efficient in. Yeah, that's great. And I think, you know, I can relate to this because it is hard to run around a track. Like I don't like to do that and I'm not an efficient runner. So as a mountaineer, I need to do it going uphill. And so I found a course, let's call it 
basically just a, a forest road not far from where I live where I can go and do this test. And yes, it's not perfect. The, the grade goes flatter and then a little steeper and then a little flatter, but I always do the test in the same place. And I, you know, you can, you can take, you can kind of take out the, the bumps and look at the averages and, and these kinds of things will, will really help you get, get it done. You know, don't think that you can do it hiking and then go do it ski touring or go to a cross country skiing or go do it cycling and expect to get exactly the same results because you're just not going to be as, a, as efficient in all these different things, all these different modalities, different sports. Definitely. Well, I think that that just about wraps up our second episode on mountaineering um, where we are getting into the actual aerobic testing. Um, and next week we will take on another aspect of training in mountaineering. Um, so thank you for listening to the Uphill Athlete Podcast. It's really helpful if you rate, review, and subscribe um, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever you listen to. And we really appreciate you coming on the journey of education with us. It's not just one, but a community. We are Uphill Athlete. Today's Uphill Athlete podcast was produced by Alyssa Clark. Our mixing engineer is Tim McLean, and our theme song was written and produced by Chase Clark. We'd love to hear from you. Please write to us, coach at uphillathlete.com. I'm your host, Steve House. Go simply, climb, ski, run, and train. Wow. Thank you for listening.